have a seat. Some of y'all may remember last week we established one of the most important facts in, uh, in our lifetime, in human history perhaps, and that is who's the hero of the story. Eastwood, who's the hero of the story? Jesus is the hero of the story. When we can get laser-like focus on the person of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done for us, it will transform our existence. And in transforming our existence, it transforms our eternity. And this morning, we're going to be kind of looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I, I will suggest to you that there are times when uh, people, people miss the main theme of it all. They can be blinded by what they're seeing. It's a misperception, perhaps by uh, the fact that there's misinformation or misunderstanding or they've been misled by somebody. There's an old story about Sherlock Holmes and Watson camping. In the middle of the night, Sherlock nudges Watson and says to him, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. Watson, being very perceptive and very wise, said, well, this is what I see. Astronomically speaking, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, it tells me that Saturn is in Leo. Chronologically, it appears to be approximately a quarter past three. Theologically, it's evident God is all-powerful and we are small and insignificant. And meteorologically, it seems we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. Watson punched Sherlock and said, what do you see? And Sherlock's response was, you idiot, somebody stole our tent. <laughs> it is easy to miss the truth if we're not looking in the right way. And I'm afraid there are a lot of us who have uh, noted the resurrection, but we actually, if the truth are known, we have doubts about this fact. Or some of you all in this room have never even thought about this, but you've been told by others that the resurrection of Jesus couldn't have been a reality. This morning we're going to climb into a space that's called apologetics. Now, I'm no genius in apologetics. In fact, I want you to know that uh, most of this information came from a guy named Lee Strobel. I'll be sharing his story as we finish this conversation this morning. But I want to climb into this with full understanding of this one fact. The resurrection is the hinge pin on which all of Christianity hangs. If the resurrection is a farce, then your life as a believer is a farce. If the resurrection never occurred, then you're wasting your life if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. If the resurrection of Jesus never happened, then those who think they're headed for heaven are actually just going to fade away when life ends. The resurrection of Jesus is the most important moment in human history because of those things. We find that Paul actually tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 some of these things that I just mentioned to you, some of these important facts. Let's see if we can look at that 1 Corinthians 15 beginning at verse 14. He begins with, if Christ has not been raised, and then goes on. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that is Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, that's Jesus Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. I want to repeat a few of the facts I just mentioned. Four important thoughts come out of this passage. First of all, 
If the resurrection didn't happen, then those who have given their lives to Christianity have wasted their entire lifetime. Secondly, if the resurrection of Jesus didn't occur, then the lives Christians live, being ostracized by others, giving time and money to the church and Christian causes, even dying for Jesus, was futile. No, it's useless. Thirdly, if the resurrection of Jesus never happened, then those who have already died and those who will die have simply died and are no more. And then finally, if in fact Christ did raise from the dead, then those who have given their life to him will be made alive after their earthly death and will enter heaven to live forever. But those who have not believed the resurrection to be a reality will die, be eternally separated from those who are Christians, and live in a place of eternal torment. That's what we find Paul outlining for us in these passages. This morning I want to unearth four areas, four categories of understanding through which we realize the resurrection of Jesus is a reality, not a myth or a legend. The first one is, he was executed. Some have argued that this Jesus wasn't even executed, but it would take an idiot to not believe it to be true with all of the facts that's out there. But some people will not recognize much of anything, even if it is true. Jewish people do not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Protestant people do not recognize the Pope as an authority. And Baptist people do not recognize each other in the liquor store. <laughs> it's actually a discontenting that you laughed so hard on that one, uh. There is this one thing that every well-studied person that's done any research will know to be a fact, and that is that Jesus was executed under Pontius Pilate. Now, when you look at what, how historians determine what is truth and what isn't, oftentimes when something of this nature from this long ago has been a historical discussion, um, they will conclude if there are two good, credible witnesses that have written something down, that that would be enough to make this a credible fact. In this instance, there are at least five writings outside of the biblical writings that confirm Jesus' execution. One of those is through Josephus, a historian of the Roman government. Another is the Jewish Talmud. Listen, there is no doubt that Jesus was executed by Pontius Pilate. In fact, an atheist New Testament scholar at Vanderbilt University, yes, an atheist New Testament scholar wrote, Jesus' death as a consequence of, future, of crucifixion is indisputable. Jesus was executed. The second space I want to climb into is that there are early reports. Some have argued that the resurrection of Jesus is a legend, that it never occurred. A legend is something that happens when an individual of some credibility or someone who's gained some influence or gained a following um, has done some things, perhaps human things, but nothing supernatural. But over time, people keep telling the story and they embellish and embellish and embellish and embellish. Normally, after about 100 years to 100 years, according to those who have studied this and are experts on legends being created, will say that it takes 100, 200 years before someone starts embellishing to the point that this idea becomes a, a considered possibility or what some would say in the minds of those who are confused, a reality. The problem with that in this instance is that this can be traced back to the cross itself, this story being told of Jesus' resurrection. Let me see if I can take you on a little bit of a journey here for a few minutes. Those of you who have read the Bible much will remember Paul on the Damascus Road. 
Paul was a persecutor of Christians and was on the road to Damascus because he was about to find some Christians to do just that with, to persecute. While on that road, Jesus appeared to him, and Paul finds himself in this awkward situation because Jesus, the resurrected Jesus is standing before him. Paul's conversion takes place, and he comes from being a person who questions the faith and even persecuting those Christians, those who are Christians, to becoming one himself and being a leader in the early church. Paul goes to Jerusalem a few years after this. So Jesus was crucified 30 AD. Some would say that this experience with Paul happened, uh, various, there's various discussions, but 30 to 33 AD, something in there. And he, a few years later, goes to Jerusalem and meets with at least Paul, or at least with Peter and with James. So we're talking about 35, 37, 38 AD. And in 1 Corinthians, he gives us a creed. Now, let me see if I can do a little explanation of a creed. A creed is a, is a, is a writing, normally at that time by a rabbi, that is passed on from the rabbi to that rabbi's disciples who then pass that creed on to others. It is a very carefully crafted statement that is not to be messed with. And in 1 Corinthians, we find that Paul gives us a creed. And here's how it reads. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So they passed to him what they had received from someone else who was with Jesus early on. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Paul, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Now when Paul speaks of receiving this creed, the term he uses is a Greek word. I'm going to say it uh, phonetically, historice. I hope I said that close to right which means that this was an investigative inquiry. He was asking this, what do you know and how do you know? What did they know? They knew that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. How did they know? Because they saw the resurrected Jesus. The timing demands thought. Some would say, well, can I still believe? Are there other documents? And of antiquity that we believe that would give us kind of the same run and help us understand outside the thoughts about Jesus. Most everyone in the room has studied about Alexander the Great at some point when they were in school. And the first documentation, the first biographies of him were written 400 years after his life. And no one questions those documents. We have rapport. Then we have an empty tomb. An empty tomb. The facts are these. Jesus' body was placed in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. The tomb was sealed, and it was discovered empty the next morning. Let me give you two thoughts here that will aid us in our conversation this morning. There are a couple of proofs. One is the criterion of embarrassment. The criterion of embarrassment. The criterion of embarrassment says this. If I'm going to record something, and I'm going to record something that either embarrasses me or weakens my case, I'm probably not going to record that thing. It will not be noted, it will not be stated, because it weakens my case rather than strengthening my case. I understand this. I told a story some years ago when I was an in, was a, a, a interim pastor at Living Hope Baptist Church. 
about an experience I had with a trampoline. Some are laughing because they've heard this story. I do not like heights. It is something I despise. It makes me very, very nervous. Uh, On a given Saturday, I climbed up my ladder to my rooftop in order to clean out my gutters. Now, when I finished cleaning my gutters, I thought to myself, I do not want to back down onto the top of that ladder than try to get down. I could fall. And so I thought to myself, surely there's another way. And I glanced to my left and saw my boy's trampoline. And I realized it was a little too far for me to get to, but my youngest son was 11 or 12 years old at the time, and I said, Lee, come here. Move the trampoline over so Daddy can jump off the roof onto the trampoline. He smartered me. His response was, Dad, I don't think that's a very good idea. (laughs) I said, son, just move the trampoline. He couldn't move it himself, so I said, go in and get your mother. That was a really bad idea. He brought Julie out, and I said, Julie, would you help Lee move the trampoline over so I can jump off the roof onto the trampoline? And her response was, I don't think that's a very good idea. I said, just move the trampoline. Now, the toughest part of this story is this. The next morning, she and I were to leave for Cancun for our vacation. We had married uh, about 15 years prior, very poor at the time, and I had saved up enough money to surprise her to take her on our honeymoon 15 years later. And she's telling me this is a bad idea, but I'm thinking this is a great idea. I'm going to show her just how manly I really am. (laughs) Now, when I got ready to jump, I thought to myself, am I going to land on my rear end or on my feet? The problem with that was I started asking that question just momentarily before I did my my jump. I only had a chance for one jump, by the way. And as, as I jumped, I wasn't sure, and so what I ended up doing was kind of bending my knees up under my rear end, and when I hit that trampoline, my right ankle just went (laughs) like that. Now, you would have thought that there had been a lot of grace, a lot of concern for me by my family. They were laughing their fool heads off. (laughs) And what went through my mind was, you're laughing is a really bad idea. Now, I wouldn't tell that story if it wasn't true because it makes me look really stupid. We have the same kind of situation here, except the magnitude of their decision to write this down is much bigger than the magnitude of my decision to tell you that story. You see, what happened here is this. These authors of Scripture, guided by the Holy Spirit to write down what they knew to be true, were proclaiming the most important thought in all of human history, and yet, in telling the story, they diminished the power of the story by saying this, by saying women reached the tomb before men did. In that culture, a woman's testimony was unacceptable. In fact, they could not testify in a courtroom. The Jewish Talmud said, any evidence which a woman gives is not valid to offer. Josephus said, but let not the testimony of a woman be admitted. And yet these guys were saying, women reached the tomb first. They'd have been much wiser to have said, John reached the tomb first or Peter reached the tomb first. Because that would have given credibility. This is such a factual thing that in the second century, people began to question the validity of the resurrection because women were noted as having reached the tomb first. The second thing is this. The opponents of Jesus admitted that the tomb was empty. They admitted the tomb was empty. They never said the tomb wasn't empty. They just made up stories in order for people to believe that his body had been stolen. The tomb was empty. Listen, the Romans didn't steal the body. They wanted Jesus dead. 
Pontius Pilate was very fearful that a riot was going to break out under his watch. It would hurt his future. The Jews didn't steal the body. They definitely wanted Jesus dead. One thing that we miss is that Caiaphas, the high priest, was actually very wealthy because of his role. He lived in a big mansion there in Jerusalem because of his role. If there's anything he wanted, he wanted Jesus dead because it was going to hurt the institution that he had oversight of. You say, well, what about, what about the apostles? What about his disciples? Did they want Jesus dead? They loved Jesus too much to want him dead. But his death and resurrection caused them to live an entire life of suffering and pain and ultimately martyrdom. I want to pause just a moment and say that that is still true today. If you watched the news this morning, you heard about Sri Lanka. Hundreds of Christians are dead today for one reason and one reason only. It's not because they're terrorists in the world today. It's because they said the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a reality and I will die for that cause. That is what these apostles experienced. You know, the other thing that makes this a very credible fact, not story, that is the resurrection of Jesus, is that there are eyewitnesses. Jesus appeared alive to at least 515 witnesses. That's what Scripture tells us. Peter, the 12 apostles, James, who was an early skeptic, and then to Paul is what Paul writes to us. They talked with him, they ate with him, and we have no fewer than nine ancient sources inside and outside of the New Testament confirming their conviction that Christ appeared to them. One would be the four Gospels. In a few generations past, there's been question about could the Gospels be credible historical works. That's all changed Dr. Craig Evans, a highly renowned scholar, said, There's every reason to conclude that the Gospels have fairly and accurately reported the essential elements of Jesus' teachings, life, death, and resurrection. They're early enough, they're rooted into the right streams that go back to Jesus and the original people. There's continuity, there's proximity, there's verification of certain distinct points with archaeology and other documents. The New Testament is a credible source historically. Interestingly enough, an atheist New Testament, New Testament scholar wrote these words. It may be taken not as a possibility, not as a likelihood, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. This is an atheist scholar. So you're asking the question I was asking. Why is he not a Christian? Why hadn't he turned the corner? If this is a fact, why didn't he say, yes, this Jesus story is a reality, not a myth or a legend or a lie? He found a loophole in his mind. Hallucinations. Hallucinations. There's a problem with this, though, because a hallucination is an individual event that happens in the mind of one person. I mean, you can't say to somebody, how'd you like the dream I had last night? They didn't have your dream last night. You can't punch your spouse in the middle of the night and say, I just woke up from a great uh, dream. Um, we were in Hawaii, and I'm going to go back to sleep, and I want you to go back to sleep so we can experience this vacation together. It cost me nothing, baby. You've been wanting to go to Hawaii. Here we are, right here. Hallucinations. 
Hallucinations don't happen for the same person in the same way, telling the same story. An expert in hallucinations wrote these words. 500 people having the same hallucination at the same time would be a bigger miracle than the resurrection itself. But not only that, if these hallucinations were real, you still couldn't account for an empty tomb. Most of the information you've heard this morning comes from a man named Lee Strobel. He was the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. His story is an amazing story, coming from atheism to ministry. Let me read a few paragraphs that he once stated. Speaking of himself, My story is a love story that started when Leslie and I met when we were 14 years old and grew up together and got married. I was atheist and she was agnostic, so we were pretty evenly matched and happy in our marriage. And then she ends up becoming a Christian, which the first word that went through my mind was divorce. I didn't want anything to do with a Christian spouse and set out really to investigate Christianity using my investigative background and journalism background for two reasons. One is, I did see some positive and winsome changes in her, but at the same time, I wanted to get her out of this cult because I didn't want her to change into some holy roller or something I couldn't relate to. I felt like she was cheating on me with this Jesus guy. I was the man in her life. And now all of a sudden there's this Jesus character who she's looking up to and worshiping. It felt very intrusive into our marriage. So finally I launched an investigation to try to determine whether or not Christianity or any other world religion made sense and had any credibility. I thought I could resolve it in a weekend, but it was like a punching bag that you hit and it would bounce back. I found that I was finding answers to my question. I was finding footprints of Jesus in history and evidence that I found compelling and surprising. I did that for almost two years of my life to finally come to the point where I sat down and said, a good jury reaches a verdict. I've got to reach a verdict. I spent two years looking at that evidence, and in light of what I consider to be an avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully toward the truth of Christianity, I came to the conclusion that it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. That's when I concluded that Jesus not only claimed to be the Son of God, but backed it up by returning from the dead. And then John 1.12 has this sort of this faith equation. Believe plus receive equals become. Believe plus receive equals become. Through that, I realized, okay, I believe it, but that's not enough. I had to receive this gift of grace through Christ so I took that step on November 8, 1981. Then, like my wife's, my life began to change, and ultimately I ended up leaving journalism, which had been my life, and taking a 60% pay cut to go on the staff of a church. God has taken us on all kinds of unexpected journeys ever since. You know, all the evidence I've given you this morning of the truth that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, um, even giving you information from outside the Bible itself, speaks volumes. But perhaps nothing speaks louder than the fact that some of us can say that in an instant, the resurrected Jesus changed our lives. For me, it was a dorm room in Moorhead State University. I'd been at a fraternity party. Now listen, nobody had me in a fraternity. I couldn't uh, have the grades to be in a fraternity, but they liked to see me soused at their parties. 
And so I was invited. I came back from that party to my dorm room. I was in my dorm room. By the way, if you're not from the 70s, soused means drunk or slammed or whatever term you want to use. And I don't know what happened except I know I was transformed. Somehow Jesus interrupted my evening and miraculously transformed me through simply saying, forgive me of my sins. I know you're the Son of God, died, resurrected from the dead, and I give my life to you. In an instant, I was sober. In an instant, I was sober. And my life has never been the same. It's not been perfect, but my life has never been the same. I just wonder, how many of you all would give testimony by a raised hand to say that I, too, experienced the transformational power of Jesus at a moment in time when I became a Christian? I want you to look around the room. The resurrection of Jesus is true not just because the facts state it to be true, but because many people's lives have been transformed in an instant by that. So we come back to our four facts that flow out of this passage of Scripture. If the resurrection didn't happen, then those who have given their lives to Christianity have wasted an entire lifetime. You have not. If the resurrection of Jesus didn't occur, then the lives Christians live, being ostracized by others, giving time and money to the church and Christian causes, even dying for Jesus was futile, even useless. The sacrifice was not and is not. If the resurrection of Jesus never happened, then those who have already died and those who will die have simply died and are no more. Not so. When you die, you will be with Jesus. If, in fact, Christ did raise from the dead, then those who have given their lives to him will be made alive after their earthly death and will enter heaven to live forever. But those who have not believed the resurrection to be a reality will die and be eternally separated from those who are Christians and live in a place of eternal torment. That doesn't have to be. Remember what Lee Strobel said? Believe, receive, and become. This morning, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you believe what you've heard this morning, that Jesus died on the cross and raised from the dead, you have the foundational understanding and belief to become a Christian this morning. That's all you need to know. He said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you believe and you choose to receive that, and ask Christ to forgive you of your sins, this morning you will become a Christian and your eternity will be set for heaven when you're no longer on this planet. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes, please? Just do that for me. Everybody bow their heads and close their eyes. If you realize this morning that you would like to become a Christian, understanding, believe, receive, and become, I'm going to ask you to pray this simple prayer after me. I will be saying nothing that you haven't already determined that you believe to be true. Just pray in your mind as I voice it. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, died, resurrected from the dead. Father, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I accept your grace. And I will do all I can to live my life for you. Amen. If you'll keep your eyes, heads bowed and your eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer, would you just slip your hand up for me and let me see you? 
I see you. Yes, just lift your hand up if you prayed that prayer this morning. Nothing to be embarrassed about, something to be grateful for. Anyone else, just slip your hand up. I'm thrilled for you this morning. Some of you all this morning have come on this resurrection day and if you've realized that Jesus gave it all, but I don't give much. And I don't mean financially, I mean just of my heart. You may want to say, Lord, today I commit my life to you fully. I'm a, I'm a Christian, but I want to live in such a way that I'm making a difference for you in this world. Will you just slip your hand up right now? Yes, I see you. Yeah. This morning, we want to give you the opportunity to respond. You, you can open your eyes now if you would. And if you made any kind of decision, we'd be so grateful if you'd record it on this tear off that I mentioned earlier and turn that in for us. We'd really like to connect with you and talk, you, talk to you about your next step. Also, we're about to sing a song. If you'd like to come to the altar and pray, we'd be thrilled that you came before your Lord in that way. I'll be here to speak with anyone who'd like to talk about something or talk about the decisions that we just mentioned. If you lifted your hand and you prayed that prayer, I'd be thrilled if you came down to speak with me as this song begins so that we can recognize you privately in this conversation. But folks, let's let Jesus be Jesus, can we? Would you stand with me, please? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, Jesus is calling. Have you come to 